A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine and I were texting about Lent. Uh, Molly, she's a pastor in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, we talked about how some years it's easy to give something up, other years you just forget. Uh, this year, I told her that my Lenten practice wasn't necessarily difficult per se, um, but it has made me pay attention to how much waste I use on a daily basis and this need I have for buying things, um, Target, you know. And uh, this year, you know, she said she didn't give anything up. She just has had a lot on her plate and uh, she felt bad about it. Um, and I told her, like, there are years in Lent where remembering that you are dust is Lenten practice enough. Um, it was about this time last year where one doctor said I needed to go to get a second MRI just to, just to check things out. It was by Easter tide that I was told to go see a neurosurgeon. And by mid-April, I had another 40 days of waiting to see said neurosurgeon. When I was a kid in Sunday school, we learned stories of Noah and Abraham and Moses and learning about their big faith in God and how we too should have this great faith. Now that's cool and all, but I wanted to know why they lived to be so old. Noah was 350 years old, Abraham was a young 175, Moses a cool 120. I wanted to live that long. So the Sunday school teacher said it was because Noah and Abraham and Moses obeyed God. They listened to their parents. They followed the rules. Obviously, my Sunday school teacher, Miss Mary Jane, had an agenda to get us to pay attention in class. But I took what she said to heart, mostly. This is what came to mind the morning I sat in the neurosurgeon's office as he showed me this black and white picture of my brain. As he said the words, aggressive brain tumor, and as I looked at what I can only describe as a demigorgon from the Stranger Things taking up all of this space in there, I could not for the life of me understand why. Because I did what I was told. I followed the rules. I never questioned what the doctor said. I obeyed. So why was this happening to me? Now, I've been to seminary. It might not look like it sometimes, but I've been and I've taken these pastoral care classes and learned how to sit with people in their grief, learned where and where not to touch people as you sat beside them. I took classes in theology and learned that despite what we might have learned growing up, sickness and disease isn't punishment from God. So logically, I knew this, right? I understood that this particular tumor grows with hormones, and well, we all have those, and this demigorgon thrived on them. But as I'm sure most of y'all know, logic and book learning go out the window in times of sorrow and crisis. Was I being punished? Was this because of that one time in high school I lied to my parents and I said I was in one place when I was really in another place? Was this punishment for having my doubts about God? I felt guilty for thinking this way, right? Because I knew better. And then I felt guilty about feeling guilty for being mad at God. 
And the vicious cycle began over and over and over again. It was this math equation that I could not get right. After leaving the doctor's office, I sat in my friend's car where she let me scream and shout as loud as I could for as long as I wanted to and needed to. All the while repeating, I did what I was supposed to do. I followed the rules. I did everything I was supposed to do. The only air in the car was that hot air that I kept breathing out. The only relief was the heat from my own big exhales. And even honest, if I'm being honest now, I still ask myself why. And I don't know the answer. Jesus knew this day was coming, and he was nervous about it. He even double-checked with God and consented that thy will be done, but... It's not so easy. It's been almost two hours, and he's in a lot of pain. This hill that he's on looks very different than the one he was in a few chapters earlier at the beginning of his ministry. He doesn't know what hurts more, the physical pain of hanging on a cross or seeing these familiar faces, once ones that were once intrigued by his interpretation of the law, now spitting and cursing at him while he fulfills it? Under the dark blue sky, he can't really see at this point, but he can hear them. Some of the voices sound familiar. He can't hear his friends. Maybe they're in the crowd with covered heads trying to lay low. They want to be there for their teacher, but they're so scared someone will recognize them so... They keep silent. They don't say a word. But what's worse for God, for Jesus, is that he can't hear God. My God, my God, where are you? He laments in the familiar language that he knows, and he says, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani. He doesn't have a lot of energy anymore, and so his shouts sound more like a whispered. The closest person to the cross asks, did y'all hear that? Did y'all hear what he said? I don't know, it sounded like he's crying for God. So another person says, no, 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 I think he's asking for Elijah. Let's poke him with a stick and see what he's really saying. Let's see if someone comes and saves him. It's strange, but... I like to take comfort in knowing that Jesus, our Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, can't feel God with him. In the search for Abba's presence, while he may not feel God with him, he still cries out, my God, my God. In his time of fear, Jesus used familiar words of a psalm to name those fears and those doubts. And this is what I love about psalms, that they're these honest poems and songs written from a place of raw emotion. In the psalm, the psalmist demands an answer from God. We may think this is a bold move, but this demand of God is a reminder of the covenant God made with God's people to protect them. And here in the midst of darkness and pain and betrayal and doubt, Jesus cries out to his God, to my God. You'll notice in this passage that Jesus doesn't get a direct answer. He takes his last breath 
And later in the story, that we, re- we read that a storm comes with this strong wind and thunder, but no direct answer from God. God, who at points in Jesus' life was so proud of him that he could hear the voice clear as day. When Dr. Brad Braxton was here in February for our winter forum, he told us about this time on his, the time he spent on the Ghanaian coast, the coast where men and women and children shackled in heavy chains from their feet to their wrists were forced onto ships to be sold into slavery. The last body of water they'd see of their beloved home, the air, he said, was thick. The ground hot with the spirit of the ancestors still dwelling in the earth. You might remember that Dr. Braxton told us that in order to do the work of racial justice, well, we must allow the ancestors to tell their stories. Some real cosmic stuff. And I'll admit I laughed to myself at the thought of us trying to channel ancestors during worship. I thought about that part in Mulan, you know, when Mushu, the little tiny dragon, beats that little drum waking up all of the ancestors to come and help Mulan. What would it be like for our ancestors, for the saints of SBC, DC, to worship with us? I took Dr. Braxton and what he said and let it marinate as I prepared for our border trip. And you see, the Rio Grande Valley, where we were for those four days, that is my ancestral ground. Generations of family lived there, lived in those parts when it was Mexico, then it, when it was America, then Mexico again, and so on and so forth. The air is thick with memories. The earth there is rich with stories of people, of my people, who crossed hoping for a better life, perhaps shuffling the dirt to turn around and take one last look at that body of water before leaving. I went hoping to hear from the ancestors, fully aware that it probably wouldn't happen the way I thought it would, assuming that it's much like contemplative prayer, right? It takes time, it takes practice. I wasn't expecting loud voices coming from the sky, but maybe you whisper. We arrived in Harlingen at 11 p.m. to a soft breeze. It was hot, unlike here in D.C., and we welcomed the breeze. The cool relief from the humidity, and I won't lie, each day got harder and harder to witness the stories of people detained or waiting to take the next leg of their journey up to the north. The hardest day was sitting in the back row, actually it was a pew, of a courtroom, a small pew. In the courtroom, there were 17 men and boys walked in, shackled, cuffed from their ankles to their wrists, unable to adjust their pants or their shirts after sitting and standing so many times, their backs facing us. We rose to pay respect to the judge and sat as the hearing began at 9 a.m., the beginning of the workday. What stood out to me was the back of their heads. You see, even from a few feet away, we could tell that these men were exhausted with how they carried their heads. Their thick black hair with cowlicks and swirls from sleep, unable to fix it before, before court, reminded me of my brother's head. 
and his ramen noodle hair and how it kind of flattens when he sleeps. Tufts that reminded me of my cousin DJ's bedhead. And as we sat in the courtroom, we could hear this loud wind outside of the windows. It grew louder as the court case went on. A marshal even had to look outside over the eighth, eighth room floor or eighth floor window to confirm that it was only wind because at some points it sounded like helicopters. I didn't know what else to do when we sat there other than cry. The judge would say each time during every sentencing that there were rules that these men had to obey. They had to follow the rules. They had to do as they were told. They had to do things the right way. And each man had a chance to give his remarks, and men who did speak all said the same things. They wanted to do right by their family, doing what they could to provide. They, too, wanted to obey and do what was right, but it was no longer enough from where they were from. All I could do was cry and repeat the words from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why? How could this be part of our godly justice? My God, my God, why have you allowed this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken them? The wind in the valley grew stronger each day. So strong, in fact, that on our last day there, there was a wind advisory. It was causing the van that we rode in to shake back and forth. It was a pest to try to hear anything in. And at some points, you had to just stand still and let the wind pass before you, before you could keep walking. At the end of the hearing, around noon, each man was taken away to serve their sentence. 10 days, 30 days, 120 days. And can you imagine sitting in a cell waiting for your sentence? Emotionally and physically exhausted from keeping watch of news. Good news? Bad news? Any news? None of them have Twitter or a phone to stay in touch with the outside world. And I wondered if any of the 17 men looked up at the ceiling asking a familiar question. My God, my God, why? Where are you? In a world where doing things the right way is so convoluted and often unattainable, when needed the most, I ask, is God here? In a world where there is so much for Christians to do that it can be overwhelming and easier to just do nothing and stay silent out of fear and failure or getting into trouble, I ask, God, are you near? In a world where imperfect humans wearing robes have the power to determine the fate of another imperfect human, I ask God, where are you? We will have times when we can't tell if God is present through grief, bad prognoses, heartbreaks, death, tragedy. We will cry out, my God, my God, are you even here? My God, my God, why? And we will not always get clear answers. Maybe not a voice from the sky. But I take comfort in knowing 
the same God of the psalmist, the same God that the psalmist cried out to, the same God that Jesus demanded answers from, is the same God that held my anger, is the same God that walked alongside those 17 men and hundreds of other people who come daily, is the same God that shows up in community, in, in meals, delivered to front porches, in prayer lists, in pews, in missions committee meetings, in any type of committee meeting. And it's the same God that invites us to the table with our doubts, with our fears, with our anger, with our joy. So bring your doubts and bring your fears to the table because God hears them all. May it be so.